And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are heightened, right? Byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 Ideas are international, but we're from cameras. So Welcome to the show. Uh, you're listening to Doll Capital with Jacob and Ben. Ben, how you going, man? I'm fantastic, Jacob. Great to be here. Very excited about this episode for the end of the year. We've got an end of year special. Yeah. Today we're joined by the fantastic Amy Haddad and our dear friend Tim Dobson. I got that right. I was calling yeah. him Dodson earlier. Nailed it. Yeah, nailed we did it. nail it. I mean, I've only known Not him for a couple one. of months, finally. It's been embarrassing. Yeah. I've been campaigning for, uh, for Tim in the past recently and the fact that I was going around and calling him Dodson, yeah, it's a bit awkward. Uh, well, I'm sure that didn't lose us any votes. No, no, not at all. How are you we, going, guys? Well, we did do very well <laughs> compared to the institutional organisations that backed some candidates, didn't we? We did okay. the election. That was very good. Not too shabby. Yeah. So, what are we doing today, Jacob? Uh, look, uh, we're wrapping up the year, year 2020. Um, it was the worst of times. It was the worst of times. Real, uh, real shit show of a year, I'd say. And um, we're gonna just sort of, I guess, take it. Right from January to December. Yeah, yeah, so bin fire time. We're going to run through, we're going to talk about the Rona. We're going to talk about things overseas. And we're going to talk about the positives from the apocalypse. And we'll also talk about political responses both locally in the ACT and in Australia and beyond. And hopefully we'll have some time to talk about our hopes and dreams for the future for 2021. So to kick us off, though, um, we've had a pretty interesting year uh, in terms of what you can only broadly see as a green light by the ruling class, if you like, by many of employers who've used a pandemic to carry out an offensive on the lives of ordinary people. Uh, And spectacularly, we've seen an interesting development at Coles in the lead up to Christmas, which we might talk about before we lead into um, talking about COVID-19 and the like. Mm. So Jacob, yeah, I'll take you through the, the sort of the background of that. So this is um, Smeaton Grange in uh, New South Wales. Um, they've got a big distribution centre for coals there um, with about uh, 350 um, logistics workers, um, pickers and forklift drivers and all kinds of things. Um, and they got word a couple, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago now, um, that their, um, their warehouse was shutting down. It was being replaced by an automated warehouse. Um, and they've been um, struggling for the last um, couple of months, I think, um, in negotiations with Coles about their EBA, trying to secure, uh, most importantly, a redundancy package that gives them, I think it's five and a half weeks pay per year that they've worked. Um, Coles had turned around and offered them, I think, uh, three or four, as well as um, uh, pay rate, I think it was a five, 5% pay increase for the remainder of the time there, and the right to move over to their new automated warehouse and keep working um, if they wanted to and if there was like available work, which Coles was refusing them, um, trying to lay them all off. So uh, that came to a head uh, at the start of December when the workers there announced a, a legal 24-hour rolling strike, um, which Coles responded to with a three-month lockout uh, without pay. Very poor proportionate. It's unbelievable and um, worth noting that it's completely legal. Um, under the Fair Work Act, um, you know, the stipulations for, I think it's called um, employer response action, something like that. Um, and uh, it's, I was just kind of reading about the legal precedent um, because, 
you know, it's been it's already been worked out in case law that there's no requirement at all for for employer response action, i.e., lockouts, to be. I think it's proportional, reasonable, or rational. Wow. Not not required, yeah. which is uh, how you get something like people being locked out of work for three months. And that yeah. was that precedent that we had a couple of years back, where Alan Joyce, the still the CEO of Qantas, uh, which has still managed to survive the pandemic, uh, who locked out uh, the workforce of Qantas um, in the in the just during run of the mill process of enterprise bargaining, and that's cited as a, creating a precedent for Coles's action of locking out its workforce. Um, but that that's that's happening there with Coles, and that's going to be an interesting one to see how it pans out over the Christmas period. There are the calls for a boycott. And, um, oh, and the other thing that we did yeah. have before you go on yep. was um, that there was a National Day of Action um, last. Was it last Friday? Yeah, yeah. How was um, it? I, I heard was there was good. a bit of noise at Westfield. Oh yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah, that's right. And the one um, one. Yeah, so I mean, there were much bigger um, groups that demonstrating in some of the other capital cities, but we had a respectable turnout of about I think thirty UW members. Um, down to the uh, word and coals there, and um, just stirring up a bit of shit, really. Yeah. Um, so that was good. It was a it was a good time. I brought a couple of new members along who were from my workplace, um, who I think had a pretty decent time. Um, and so we just went down, um, you know, uh, filed in kind of one by one, um, subtly into the doors of coals, and all kind of got ourselves some trolleys and just sort of you know pantomime shopping until um, got the got the signal. And then um, just started kind of disrupting and um, marching around, chanting, singing, explaining to you know customers what what's been going on over its meat and grange. Um, and then we had the, the company men come out, um, and uh, it was hilarious. Like the first thing the store manager said was, "Don't you guys know anything about social distancing? You're all standing too close together." It was like, "Okay, yeah, nice try, buddy. Thanks very much for that." Um, but yeah, like, uh, those guys, like they knew all their lines really well. It was kind of interesting, like, but they'd been prepped. I think, um, they knew something was happening, even though we, um, didn't give them any forewarning. Wow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a good time. And, um, as I said, like there was some huge turnouts in some of the other capital cities and, um, I don't know, we'll be following it closely. Um, I am just really hopeful that the 350 workers who are locked out, um, are, you know, in the driver's seat as far as the negotiations are going and that they end up getting particularly their um, redundancy pay that they're asking for because that's got big implications for anyone who's working in any industry that's vulnerable to automation. And I guess, look, to, to swing it back around the talking with our, with our wonderful guests today, in the ACT, we also just recently had a win over at Calvary where uh, workers from the, was it the United Workers Union uh, won a, a well, basically like a dollar an hour pay increase. This comes from the fact that the um, rather nasty multinational, which won the um, contract with the ACT government, which in and of itself I think is something that raises a whole lot of questions, like why are these cleaners employed by a multinational and not directly by the ACT government? But anyway, in an essential service, they were originally offered a pay increase of five cents an hour. It took a whole lot of uh, heartache and anxiety for mostly our workforce of uh, mainly culturally and linguistically diverse workers, many of whom were international students who had no recourse for any other support, very much worried about their jobs, taking industrial action for the first time. Um, so they did secure uh, over, over a dollar extra an hour. But I guess it points, paints a picture of, um, we've got some examples here of some struggle that is, on the one hand, the normal run-of-the-mill process of enterprise bargaining, but the other hand has been 
quite aggressive stances taken by employers using the colour of COVID as an excuse to offer very, very terrible poverty wages or, in some cases, an opportunity to just cut their workforce and try to smash union organisation. We know one of the issues over at Coles at the, uh, the, the, the plant was the fact it was highly unionised is uh, one of the other things that people have talked about. But swinging around, like um, I guess what we're seeing around Australia is uh, an incredible um, attacks on the quality of life and the rights and conditions for, for working people uh, across the board and with the massive unemployment rates, the massive underemployment rates, the mucking around with what sort of support they're actually going to give to, to people. And we've literally found even white-collar workers have, um, particularly say the university sector is really stark, have literally been thrown on the bonfire by their employees. Mm. Uh, I was talking to a friend yesterday who was actually talking about RMIT applying across the board 18% pay cut. Uh, you know, oh yeah, those that were lucky to keep their jobs, that is. Um, yeah, you can stay on, but you lose your wage. But Amy, like, I'm, I know we, some of the responses by the federal government has been interesting with this one, but in particular, we have seen, um, and I know, the, the, was it the Credible Women um, response? Like, what, what was that all about? Like, Credi- yeah. yeah, Credible Women was in response to the budget yeah. as opposed to industrial conditions, but there's certainly an overlap. So. Um, credible women emerged after the federal government put out its budget in October, was it? Um, Which had, I think the technical term is fuck all uh, for addressing any of the gender issues that we've seen that have existed for a long time but are exacerbated because of COVID. Um, And I think it was Georgie Dent wrote an article about it saying, hey, this is a very poor response in the budget to a range of structural issues that need to be addressed. And apparently um, someone from Morrison's office cracked the shits and called her up and said, there's no one credible making this accusation, Um, at which several thousand very smart women around Australia said, hold my beer, Um, and and emerged for a fairly um, persistent rolling commentary around the need for budgets and policy to be informed by gender and social inclusion analysis. So that's a that's a specific story around how budgets do or don't take into account social equity issues. But yeah. you can stretch that need and that the need for understanding the impacts of these things in a um, social justice way to every part of policy across government. And so I think what we're seeing with the industrial situation is this is what you get with 20 years of pressure on organised labour and 20 years of um, dismissing the need to balance the power between employees and employers. Mm. And that's just going to be more stark as we roll into the things that you're talking about, Jacob, automation, the future mm. of work, as climate change creates all kinds of disruptions in the economy. We've seen what coronavirus has done. Um, if we don't have the structures in place to equalise those power imbalances, then people who don't have power will be fucked over. Mm. Um, And here we are. What do you reckon like about maybe over the course of this year, um, it's been so disruptive and it feels like history has kind of like moved forwards very quickly in some ways. Like um, how has the, I don't know, the, um, the landscape for industrial action like really changed? Has it really changed like because of coronavirus? Um, One thing that I was like thinking about was the, the use of language around essential workers in like a lot, all of the recent UWU stuff, both with the Coles, um, Smith and Grange workers, um, with and also with the um, hospital workers as well. Like, um, is that like a significant change? Is it sustainable? 
Yeah, I think I think it is significant, but it's not enough. And yeah. and certainly, like recognition is not enough. Mm. And that's the thing that I think people are learning. Just because people say it doesn't mean it necessarily translate over to actual material improvement for those workers. And that's where you actually need to force people into change because often the people who are in charge of the conditions of these essential workers are the, like massive companies and sometimes multinational companies. And they're not just going to respond to um, good feelings, good vibes. Mm-hmm. They're going to... Um, they're in it for the profit so it's basically workers organization is still paramount and i think that's what people are starting to realize that these things don't just happen Uh, and certainly last couple of months it seems like in australia and locally there's been more industrial action um, and we're coming from really historic lows of industrial action in australia so it'll be interesting to see what the overall numbers are but in the act there was the calvary um, workers. There's also the the um, waste collectors as well, mm-hmm. who've been um, on strike for a while now. And to be honest, the ACT government's taken mostly a standoff approach to, yeah. to that. And I think that's something that we need to look at as well, because they've contracted a multinational, um, mm-hmm. Suez, a French company. Um, and I think they can take a more proactive role mm-hmm. um, to support workers, because waste collectors are some of the most essential you could yeah. possibly have. Um, and their industrial action hasn't really been recognised as mm. significant. I think that's something we, we need to look at as well. It's also been this year that school cleaners are now classed as Department of Education employees, mm. which is a real shift. Mm. So do you think that model has legs in other sectors in the ACT? Yeah, I think that's where we need to head yeah. because I don't know, I've certainly had a lot of complaints about a lot of contracted out um, parts of the ACT government. I know, like, for public housing tenants, um, maintenance has been, was outsourced to Spotless, mm. and there's lots yeah. of complaints about them not following through, and I think it's ACT government really needs to say, if you're not doing it, you're out, and we're taking over, mm. um, because then you can guarantee conditions, but also make sure that this work is being done to what is necessary. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think... Um, Part of your campaign, like Tim, for our listeners who, who aren't aware, Tim Tim Dobson <laughs> was uh, was one of our uh, Labor candidates for Murrumbidgee in the ACT election. And I know Tim, you had a lot of involvement um, when COVID hit early in the year. I know you're involved in this mutual support movement, which was what a really positive thing that sort of kicked off around the world. Um, you know, it just happened in, in all sorts of developing third world, whatever countries where dealing with the, the social crisis of the pandemic where things were locked down, um, communities got in there to actually support. Um, people were doing it very tough in terms of making sure that people were getting fed and food and, and you know, the things that are met. But um, yeah, I think, you know, your experience there in terms of, did you, did you found that, um, yeah, I guess you got that, 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 those examples from people in government houses and the like, sort of talking about how, you know, outsourced services don't work. And it was a win for us last year. I think we celebrated it rather well that uh, we managed to, the left had a big victory in terms of having clean, school cleaners included as government workers. So we do have precedent, which is great. But uh, yeah, and uh, how did you find, like, the, I don't know, do you find it's like, you mentioned before, the, the flipping and the industrial action going on, it's like we've gone from something, people feeling powerless and sort of like we're just basically trying to support, apply, to provide some sort of, you know, feel good, immediate support to now we've got, at least we've had situations now where people actually have been taking action too. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of like, if you ask people to um, do a collective sacrifice, which has 
code during COVID, there is going to be expectations at the other end that, that, that people get something from it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're starting to see now, that people understand better now than before that they are actually integral to the functioning of the whole economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that's not by itself enough, but at least gives the impetus to take further action. So... Um, for instance, I know in public education, like teachers were much more aware of their role in not just educating, but in terms of keeping the whole economy going, uh, because Scott Morrison was pretty clear that that's, that was uh, the integral. Yeah. Um, and I think that should give people confidence um, in terms of making their demands. And certainly, um, I think that's what we're going to see in the next year, but I think we're also going to see an offensive on the other side as well yeah. um, because we know that there's been increasing monopolization um, due to COVID across the world um, and certainly there'll be a lot of um, corporate confidence um, to consolidate these gains um, and that would include um, making sure that uh, wage demands are yeah. uh, restricted. What about like the the definition of essential worker? It's kind of interesting now that because I mean we kind of live in I feel like a uh, bit of a crisis-ridden interregnum period um, at the end of the, the neoliberal era. Um, and it just so happens that COVID was the thing that ended up kind of, you know, being the first external shock. Um, and that means that we've got this new classification that is relevant for industrial relations, but also for, like, I guess, broader political discourse of, like, the essential worker. And it's essential as defined as, you know, people who we have to we need to keep working because of like even when they could get infected by a virus but i'm just thinking like could be any number of um you know catastrophic crises on the horizon where the need to have some kind of definition of people who have to keep working in order for like the social reproduction to take place um would be a totally different set of you know set of jobs basically like or do you think that they're pretty stable no matter what happens like because it is it's like it's like uh, transport workers and health workers, cleaning workers, and then, like, I guess, food. Re- retail distribute well, food distribution. Yeah, distribution, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's a whole section of, like, kind of higher commodity um, retail, where it's mm. things like, I don't know, um, beach towels and hand creams and um, mm. designer um, glasses or whatever, like, things that it's, like, oh, nice to have, but everybody can basically live without. Um uh, you know, so on the other hand, it's like I know in the US, like I think uh, there have been efforts to classify like financial workers as essential workers so that they can get the uh, COVID vaccine uh, rolled out to them as quickly as possible. Um, so yeah, I, that's an interesting thing. I just wanted to like flag that I think that the the designation of essential worker is now like a new terrain of like struggle in a way, or it's like going to have to be fought over. I think we need to be really careful about it. Like, there's a couple of things in there. Um, you had at one point Scott Morrison saying anyone with a job is an essential worker, which is clearly bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you also have, uh, there's a big question about essential for what. So I think it's useful to examine sort of what's happening, particularly with office workers and public sector workers at the moment um, with this, we don't want you to work from home, driven by the fact that there are coffee shops going broke in the CBD. So rather than saying, well, maybe this is a new normal coffee shops and you should, you should look at your business model. Mm. There's this pressure 
potentially against the interests of workers who might might prefer that working from home model to be pushed into these sectors of the economy in order to keep non-essential stuff like cafes working, um, which has a what, bunch what of implications for transport and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But then your your point about classifying workers as essential in the American context that didn't help racialized people in the U.S. That didn't help working class people. That didn't help black people. That didn't help um, Latin Americans because they did their work. They had no resources to do it. They had no, their health insurance was shit. They got sick and they died. So the fact that you can co-opt the word essential from a position of power mm. in order for it to mean what you need it to mean for your vision of the economy mm. is something that I think we need to be very clear about whether we want to be part of that and, and if, if we are, how we stake a claim in that yeah. discussion. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think that, that, thing, that weird, they did use the cafe example, which was very strange, in, um, because if you actually really think about it, the pressure really was the, the big landowners, the office, those that own the buildings renting well, out. What it tells you is capitalism yeah. is essential, yes, yeah. yes. not society. Not society yeah. And so what we need is it's for capitalism to keep happening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so please yeah. be in public transport for three hours a day, mm-hmm. be shoved in that office, mm. yep. go and buy a $5 coffee, which contributes nothing to your personal well-being, but it means your money is in the economy because we forced it to be mm. there. It's so short-sighted as well because fucking mm. like, what happens if there's ma- more mass infections and like twenty percent of the workforce dies? Yep. Mm. Wages will go up. Go! Yep. It's so there's no like calculation of like really even the long-term interests for capital accumulation. So I think part of that conversation about essential is also about you can flip it and turn it into not essential for the economy but essential for society and then attach to that a risk and responsibility discussion. Because one of the things that was happening in the US, for instance, is that postal workers were classified as essential, got no personal protective gear. So literally touching things that millions of other people are touching, ringing doorbells, walking around streets, interacting with the maximum number of people, no masks, no hand sanitizer, no way to wash their hands, no gloves. So I think there's something in there for us but we need to be very clear about what the framework around that looks like. I think there's potential, um, but you've got you know Scott Morrison, the king of marketing, mm. saying you know if you have a go, you get a go. If you've got mm. a job, you're essential. I mean, we've got to move it past the slogan. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a from the very beginning. I think there was a real danger of like it just being symbolic disrecognition as well and i think we saw that with like the nhs workers mm. in the uk people come out and clap um which <laughs> i forgot about that yeah man. and they did that <laughs> in the hey, us hey, yeah <laughs> and they're still doing it oh god no, this is my guy it's only fun the first time and boris johnson was out there clapping and you know in in one sense you can say that's a nice acknowledgement for like for ordinary people to show that they but um, it can be transitioned that that's that's what we're doing. We're showing how much we care about you, and that's enough. Um, and that's where like we need to move beyond the symbolic to the material. Um, and that yeah. is when when people are saying this is what we need mm-hmm. um, in our job, and not just symbolic recognition. We actually need personal protective gear. We need more higher wages. Yeah. We need more support. Um, there are things which actually do clash with entrenched interests mm. um, and that's where actual support is actually needed to make sure that workers get what they want rather than just a symbolic like yep. pat, pat on the back mm. and it's interesting that in the framework of essential workers clearly childcare workers fell mm. very mm. clearly into that and yet no surprise to anyone wage theft on a massive scale through a massive multi 
multinational profit-driven corporation yep. some of the poorest paid most marginalized workers in the economy responsible for keeping it going to the extent that it did and they've been screwed over yeah no it's certainly some um I guess the thing is, like, I mean, I think with this show, we don't want to sort of focus too much on the minute of how horrible it is because you can turn on the daily news to get how bad it is. And I'm sure there'll be lots of the year in review to uh, remind us of the horror, the horror, the horror. Um, I, I think what, what we, we're sort of really getting to is like uh, there's, what do they call it? We're seeing a pivot. So it's gone from like people really feeling absolutely disempowered and and, and then pivoting in a, in a positive way actually dealing with what the what the crisis have done the fact that in many ways the the um, employers have, and the government have used um, COVID as an opportunity to wreak havoc um, but also as a, you know it's partly forced people to, to fight um, that's one thing but they're also it's also the whole sort of there's a lot of um, uh, things that haven't been resolved um, previous previous uh, crisis so um, which probably Leads us to like uh, you know we have seen like the the concentration of power and corruption has been quite telling with this this year has been amazing the uh, what's his name the Blake who runs Amazon like you know obscene amounts of money mm-hmm. um, we've seen the um, in terms of uh, the gas industry have, were you know they handpicked to sit on a special advisory committee for the Australian government mm-hmm. which you know surprise surprise let's continue our fossil fuel sort of. Uh, interventions um and we've seen incredible profits made by some sections of capital i mean retail is you know pretty obvious um and especially especially a couple of the big really kind of um evil silicon valley firms that Mm. have just sort of crowded into the australian market um, around transport and food delivery and things like that yeah um that covid was like a perfect moment for them to yeah, consolidate their grabbing of market share that they yep. had already been doing. Yeah. And, and then we have the, like, I mean, you can only call it, I, I use the term corruption, is when you see um, s- um, selective interests um, getting special treatment just because of wealth, right? So prior to this latest outbreak of, um, that's occurred in, in Sydney at the time of, um, of recording this episode, um, the university sector for example was rattling the cage trying to demand uh, special dispensation for um, overseas students to come back to into universities because oh we, we so need to continue this um, sham that has been our higher education system that's been bankrolled by the middle class of Southeast Asia really which is really not working for everyone mm. and you know other than people with wealth uh, all at the same time saying special arrangements to uh, import um, people from developing and poor countries to our north to come in and pick fruit for the Australian agribusiness because, well, there's no great surprises here. Agribusiness in Australia doesn't pay those workers properly and a lot of the domestic, well, a lot of the domestic workers work it out saying, well, why do I want to go and work for $3 an hour and be basically told where I have to live and they charge me for where I live and, you know, mm. treated as a slave. But mm. they were advocating that prior to this latest... Um, outbreak. So there's, I mean, I'm just sort of just drawing a picture there of there's pretty god awful things have gone on. And I was also thinking um, the number of women who found themselves because the the crisis for childcare uh, mm. has been shocking. The number of people who have been forced back into employment, which really fundamentally proves the problems with um, the the idea of care in our society. The structures aren't there to enable um, couples or single people to actually, you know, go out and be involved in the economy without 
there's they're not they're not adequately looking after children and taking a responsibility for it because they've gone and privatised it, and then they don't provide the, the support. Therefore, like when people get sent home, we've had the phenomenon of like people with say with the education sector, you know, people a lot of people at home schooling has been a, a big crisis for a lot of people. I mean, for some people it's been absolutely wonderful, all the rest of it, but for others it's been really fraught and has really financially affected people in many ways. But that's, I guess, drawing a picture of how bad things are and I think we're now seeing, at least been seeing a defensive the other way from our side, which is good. Yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on those topics. I think there are a bunch of things in there. I think, I think you would take fruit pickers and parents um, together, slave slave labour for both. Um, <laughs> it's it's about how we categorise work and value in the, mm-hmm. not I don't want to say economy, I want to say in our community. Yeah. Um, so, and we could talk for a long time about the extent to which, um, you know, the gendered unpaid labour of child and household and social care is expropriated on behalf of capitalism so yeah. that men can go to work and have someone wash their undies and look after their kids. Um, it turns out that model doesn't change just because women go to work as well mm-hmm. um, if capitalism hasn't recognised the value of that work in the first place. And yeah. so as soon as there's pressure, those gender norms rear their heads and women are back home. And with the, the data is stark and interestingly pretty much universal. So in, this has happened in every country where access to work has been restricted because of COVID. It's women who've quit their jobs or reduce their jobs mm. on a far greater scale than men. Um, and, I, you know, what we see with the fruit picking as well, what we've been talking about since we were at university together yeah. about globalisation and downward pressure on wages and, and you know, whether it's shifting low wages overseas or shifting, shifting low-wage workers to here, um, you know, sooner or later we're going to have to front up to the fact that strawberries are expensive and maybe they shouldn't be four bucks a punt. Yeah. Um, and well, what we're going to have to do... Strawberries that specifically came from, yeah. you know, like 4,000 kilometres away. Or so I think there's there's something in there about the way we consume as, as humans. I did want to touch on the, the international students um, issue with universities because I think there's something more there's something more complex happening there which is about the deregulation of how universities are funded and then the necessity to go to that um, middle class Asia um, Mm. in order to subsidize the cost of universities so it's a different form of exploitation at a a different part of the market Um, but the impact of that is that the university sector is collapsing and we can we can spend a long time saying you were structured poorly it's like yes that's true and you need to reform and yes that's true mm. but right now that sector is collapsing and that's having significant impacts on workers but also students mm. who still have, still have degrees that they need to finish and i have to um you know full disclosure i have both an academic partner and an academic child so i have a, a kid in university whose degree is being yeah. screwed over about mm. once a week at this stage yeah um but i but the reason i want to say that i want to make it really clear that we're not coming at this from a we don't like foreign students foreign no. students are actually very important yeah. um yeah. but there's a clearly um fundamental fragility in the way that sector is funded and i think a separate conversation about why the government hates it so much um mm. there's clearly a cultural aspect happening um in that context as well the only sector not to be bailed out through the other supports that were put in place around JobKeeper mm. in particular. What, what do you think on that one, Tim, what, about the university sector? Have you got any thoughts on that one? Um, not not anything more than what Amy just said, but I would say there has been a real 
I think there's been existential crisis on the on the right in Australia when it comes to things like job seeker and job keeper because I think they were they were pressured into it, but also that I think they recognised it was necessary for um, for the economy not to just completely implode to yeah. have high, higher levels of wages and maintain people in jobs. But you could see how quickly it moves when people were saying. Uh, this means that people are not going to work. You know, they, they're choosing, they're exercising choice about what jobs they're doing. And they saw that as a major crisis, uh, which it would be. Um, yeah. and, and that's because, uh, while from my perspective, it's a good thing mm-hmm. that people basically say, no, I'm not going to work unless I get these good pay, good conditions. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see in the next year, basically. Like, they want to roll back because it's a real crisis when people exercise more control over their labour. Mm. Uh, and we see that in the US as well. Um, both the Republicans and Democrats were really reluctant to give people um, subsidies yeah. or just money because they would basically say, no, I'm not going to yeah. work for Uber, yeah. you know. because I... So I think that's, that's going to be... Uh, a major issue in Australia that rolling back and what it does, what it does to people, because I think people have higher expectations when it comes to that, and they should. Um, Do you think it's been useful though for challenging the um, sort of long-term framing of welfare recipients as right. unworthy, um, of suspicious, of gen- generally sort of um, out to scam? Um, and we suddenly had this change, which was actually welfare is really important and your being in receipt of welfare mm. doesn't turn you into some kind of bludger. Mm. Um, and I think that was part, I think that's part of the crisis for the right as well. And you can see how hard they were trying to ring fence this package of support mm. so that down the track they could continue this punitive framing of welfare mm. um, as something that people should be punished for. And it's interesting you see... Um, Pauline Hanson talking about that awful um, injury card. Oh, um, what did she say? She said, she said uh, when, you go on, your, when you're when you on go welfare, welfare, you don't you have rights. rights. You give up your rights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which oh, is fundamentally right. incorrect yeah, and, yeah. And, and no one in the government would explicitly say that, but that's clearly the, yeah. the place that they're yeah. coming from is that you've forfeited your right to yeah. dignity as a starting yeah. point. And I think it's... And I, I wonder whether that broader exposure of the Australian populace to the necessity of a safety net might mm. make that a hard like might make that punitive mm. framing of welfare harder to push or easier to push against. I don't, know, I don't kind feel of optimistic about that, to be honest. Like I think that splitting the firstly splitting the like safety net uh, into job keeper and job seeker was like such a coup mm. for capital. Um, and maybe something that the uh, sort of institutional leadership of the labor movement might have been a bit um complacent on or blindsided by because would have been they would have been saying that this is a huge welfare package that's essential and been like that's good but not really paying enough attention to the structure of it because people should be asking themselves okay so i'm getting i have to receive like subsidized you know wealth wages or welfare why is it coming to me through my boss that's a really important question because what, what that whole regime did was it, like, you know, maintains dependence on employers mm. for, like, the wage. Um, so it's a really, really important, even yeah, as people but, were but getting welfare. But critically, Jake, what it like, did yeah. is it meant that you could receive welfare from the tax office 
and not from Centrelink. Right, right. Yeah. So there's a psychological yeah. split yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've spoken to people in the know about this. It's like, oh, it's because the tax office was set up to do this. It's like, well, so is Centrelink. Yeah. It's like, mm. no, no, Centrelink is to punish people. Yes. And yeah. we don't want these people to have to experience the yeah. horrors but of But it that. remains disciplinary in the sense that you still have to be on the books with your employer yeah. to get it at all, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And, that, and then... Um, as it was being rolled back, right? Like I felt there was a threshold that I hit at one point where it was like, oh, it no longer is more than my normal wages if I work my normal shifts. Mm. So it, it now it's like benefits my employer, but it doesn't, it's invisible to me. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's like the, that was a really important um, like thing about the last, you know, the last year uh, in terms of the evolution of the welfare state, the change of like people's public perception or, or the discourse mm. around welfare. Um, is that they, I think, managed to save themselves from what could have been like a disastrous shift in public perception mm. by keeping it tiered and everything and keeping the um, additional money coming through Job Seeker or what was usually called Newstart um, as a um, coronavirus supplement mm. rather than raising the rate. Um, it's like a, a lot of, you know, um, like linguistic trickery basically yeah and it means they can continue to run this line that the best form of welfare is a job yeah yeah which is like i don't think you understand what the word welfare means yes um so it allows it allows them to allows them to ignore that part of the population and this sort of circles back to that initial point about you know who cares for the weak and the poor in our society and people who don't you know people do that for free so it, it, it allows them to um, ignore that part of the populace that can't work for whatever reason, um, including that they have other duties like yeah. parenting and care. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I was trying to be positive because Ben no, tried to be no, positive, no, but I told I'll stop you. That I'll be positive. No, but I, I think I think I think you both um, highlighted some really uh, interesting um, issues around that, like around the way the treatment of the, the term welfare. And the way in which the government has reacted to basically what what was technically we were talking about like if you at one point it was something like over thirty percent of the the working population was was either unemployed or on this um, job furlough it was you know rates higher than the the last depression I and and then it's also like we know that the calculations of data are unemployed the minute you work for an hour for payment in kind which could be someone giving you a slab of beer mm. for gardening their lawn right. And if you declared that, actually you're obligated to declare that, um, you disappear from the unemployment rate. Um, so they're just huge numbers of people. And then right now, there are still huge swathes of the population that are, that are unemployed. That's, that's been fascinating. But what gets us to a really good discussion, and the positive thing is that we've been able to actually, it's opened up a space for people to actually talk about, well, how are we organising work? Mm. Isn't the way in which work has been organised pretty redundant? Mm. Like we've got either people not having enough hours to live because they're not paid well enough. Or too many hours. Or too many hours and, you know, they're in this sort of crazy situation yeah. of like, well, you know, we, we know people who are doing pretty well white-collar professionals who don't get to see their children. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's yeah. kind of yeah, nuts, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, and, and I think that does lead into positive discussions that have been going on around the left about, well, um, forget there are some people who sort of turn around and they've been campaigning for like a jobs guarantee type thing I personally think there's more of an argument for like well really work isn't that wonderful right mm. let's let's stop glamorizing it yeah. participating in our community yeah. and our society is a good yeah. thing whether it's a four-day week whether it's a 15-hour week 
getting by under some sort of living income, yeah. whether work is a bonus on top of that. that those discussions are going on, and I think mm. that's really positive. That's so what do you think about, like, uh, rather than like a, a left discourse around um, redistribution of wealth or income, um, a redistribution of labor time or yeah. you know, something like that? Um, I think the challenge is we can see with even with the hotel quarantine program, which is essential to containing the virus. Mm. We see security guards having to work two free jobs. Yeah. Right. Instead of like guaranteeing their income so that they can just work in one place, they've they just kept the current relations in place. Right. Which is like massively counterproductive. But to intervene is basically to to upturn that mm-hmm. um, labor market mm-hmm. in which people are uh, going from job to job and very insecure work. So I think that shows even when it's crucial um, to contain the virus and the functioning of the economy, mm. they haven't been willing to intervene in that. Yeah. So that shows how far we've got to go. But I do think one thing that we will see from it is I think there is going to be increasing expectations. So I think actually the fact that unemployed people got higher um, amount of money mm. um, and a better standard of living mm. does actually mean that those people feel more empowered to say well, this should continue. Yeah. Whereas before it was just punitive, mm. like just people like holding on. They've seen what is possible. Mm. And I think that's a big clash that we're going to see. But also it's not just in those sectors. Like I think a lot of professional workers has basically seen that it's possible to work from home. It's mm. possible to have more uh, flexibility mm. in your um, day-to-day workouts. You don't have to go to the office. You don't have to have those same relations. Yeah. Um, and that was done like that, right? Yeah. And I think those expectations will remain, but I think there will be a counter push to that mm. because we know that the role of this, the central office is to discipline people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it is going to be a battle. I don't think it's uh, foretold what's going to occur, uh, but I think the, that clash is what's going to shape what's going to occur mm. in the future. Yeah. I think, Tim, with that, um, the raising of the unemployment rate, um, social science researchers dream like we have the evidence now to show what happens Mm. to poverty when you increase that rate and so notwithstanding that there will be pressure and that these might be long campaigns i feel like there's been a shift in the willingness to say poverty happens in australia and we just showed you what the answer to that is and um there's some really powerful research now that doesn't mean research doesn't translate into policy but i think it is the evidence for what happens and and the stories that came up like i got my teeth fixed i got my car mm, serviced yeah. my kid could go on excursions yeah, yeah. um you know basic basic things that i think you know some of us live in a bubble and just assume that everyone does that it's like no yeah. actually these uh, people can't afford that yeah and we can involve unemployed people in that yeah, process that's exactly of, right. uh, like advocating for it because that, i feel like feel like it's possible now mm-hmm. but i think there's and this is probably another, ep- another episode um but with upward pressure from the bottom, I think there needs to be downward pressure from the, from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, because part of that story around what you're talking about, Ben, with those really long hours, mm-hmm. um, is you know what we talk about in our house is internalised capitalism and this idea that earning more money must always be better mm-hmm. um, because that worked really well for the way the economy is structured at the moment as opposed to, well, maybe I don't need to work this many yeah. hours and sure. then the payoff for that is I'm healthier I'm not consuming so much that the environment might not hate me as much and I don't have to toil at this dead, awful, terrible, terrible job. Um, I think it's still a bit of a taboo to have that conversation, to say maybe you don't need to earn this much money 
wealth, inverted commas, can come from other places. Mm. Um, because I think we've probably reached the point where refusing to consume is one of the most subversive things you can do. Mm. Um, but the planet needs that yeah. to happen. And as a community and a society, we yeah. need that to happen. All right. Good segue. Here we go. So this time uh, nice. last year, yes, uh, you will remember the camera was blanketed in a shroud of toxic, toxic smoke. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was not very pleasant. You couldn't go outside. Uh, and um, in the intervening 12 months um, basically nothing happened about that because we had coronavirus it was a nice big distraction that has meant that uh, there's been absolutely no movement on climate change in Australia at all Um, with the exception that I think the Morrison government has decided now not to use its carryover credits to to cheat on its Kyoto um, targets so uh, which themselves are kind of like laughably um, low in any case well they were actually they were, we were allowed to we wrote them more out. under mm. Kyoto. Oh, great. So yeah. Australia was one of, I think, only two countries that was yeah. able to increase its carbon emissions. Okay, but is that a result of just carbon trading? Uh, like us having yeah. more credits or something? Or oh, it's so, because yeah. per capita we were low at the time compared yeah. to others. It's okay. very, very long time ago. My, <sighs> my old environmental yeah. law degree can't remember what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so let's maybe talk about like what's uh, in the on the cards in the future, like next year, um, since we had a, a year of total um, stasis on climate action. Um, I think we've probably come to the end of the like the era of like Greta and the um, suffer the children approach, where it's like, well, if we just get enough um, school age children um, on the TV, then we can like guilt like the Bilderberg mm. Society or Davos or whatever into mm. um, not taking private jets everywhere and like uh, winding down extractive industry and whatever. So that's not going to work. Uh, so uh, is 2021, 2021 going to be the year of uh, an organised class resistance uh, through working class institutions to, to climate change or, or what are we headed for? Well, I think uh, we've seen climate action from the Chinese government who um, stopped <laughs> stopped all um, <laughs> coal exports from Australia. Yes, so they've uh, taken the most significant action for Australia's um, emissions. And I think that is that is actually a major thing. And actually, again, that's a crisis for the right who've mm-hmm. like, tried to combine pro-coal with the anti-China uh, rhetoric and it sort of all came together and actually China actually mm-hmm. said oh, now we can actually do something about it <laughs> and they're like really shocked and I think that's it's because it's such a major uh, export like yeah. coal exports and China is actually suffering from it from this decision in terms of blackouts and not yeah. having enough but they've followed through on it mm-hmm. and I think that is that is a major issue um, which is going to emerge in, in the sense that that the right has always said that we can't stop coal because we rely on that export mm. money. Well, a lot of it's gone now. Yeah. Um, so the transition, I think, to renewables from that perspective will be necessary. Um, but also, um, yeah, it does actually undercut a lot of that argument. So I think there is the capacity to, to push more and more, but um, it's not it's not going to be easy because these are the issues that we are discussing before have emerged as really prominent in people's lives. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it, climate change is going to continue to be an issue, but there's going to be a lot of immediate concerns which trumpet for some people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what we have to recognise as well. But, um, yeah, I think I think there will be... That issue is, like, Biden is coming in and he's, like, committed to the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. And I think there will be a lot of, um, I guess... 
uh, emphasis on like international agreements and yeah. like focusing on that but we know that there's a lot of inadequacies in that approach as well but I think the fact that the US is back on board mm-hmm. will mean that there will be a lot of focus on like um, trying to get that working. Biden's also talked about um, you know punishing or sanctioning um, you know countries that the US uh, or the UN whoever um, brand is climate vandals um, I think he said that in relation to Brazil specifically but should the Australian government be kind of worried about being branded as climate vandals? I mean, I'd be surprised to hear it coming from the US, to be honest, even under Biden, but it's certainly coming loud and clear from, like, the South Pacific. Yeah, I think that they'll choose very selectively about who's a climate yeah. vandal. I'm, I'm thinking China, I'm thinking Russia, I'm thinking, like, Maybe countries. Well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Who are willing to call vandals? Look, I, I think... Um, I think you're right that there's that the opportunity to create fear against change. We'll see it with climate and we'll see it with industrial relations because it's so easy to say, remember that time when you didn't think you had a job? Remember that time when you weren't sure where your next paycheck was was coming from? Remember how personally impacted by that you were? Now is not the time to threaten those things through climate action or through industrial action. which is not sophisticated, but I mean, that's definitely, I mean, fear is an easy tool to use. Um, I think in terms of the international positioning for Australia, there's nowhere for this government to hide now that um, Biden, one hopes, gets inaugurated on the 20th of um, January because, you know, Australia doesn't want to hang out with those with those other countries. So there was a little bit of coverage from the US which won't exist anymore. But I think... I think you're right that we won't see, um, I don't think we'll see very direct pressure from the US or anyone on Australia. We'll see that exclusion. So that meeting that happened that we weren't invited to, I mean, the media is acting like that's a big thing, but we've not been invited to meetings like that for a long time. Um, but I, yeah, I think it makes it harder, it, hard, it makes it harder for the government yeah. to hide in a rhetorical sense, but I don't think it makes an enormous difference in the short term um and i think actually the work is on the side of the left to actually knit together a story which is about the our future and the changing nature of work and the changing nature of climate and the changing nature of capitalism and how those things come together in a way that works for workers Mm. and works of social justice and I think the, the effort for that is on our side because no one else is going to do that for us. And while we're bitching amongst ourselves about whether shutting down coal mines loses too many jobs, we're not take, we're not seizing that discussion. Yeah. It's still only, it's only like, it's like six and a half thousand people employed in the coal industry. 10,000 people Ten, in yeah. tertiary sector yeah. lost their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Just like that. Hi, everyone. It's Jacob here. Uh, just butting in in the middle of the show while I'm doing the editing to let you know that I looked it up. And uh, as of 2018, there were 35,000 people employed in the coal mining industry in Australia. That amounts to, by rough calculation, about uh, 0.14% of the Australian population in total, or about 0.3% of the Australian workforce. So without further ado, I'll take you back to the show. (laughs) 
if only they'd win yeah. if only they'd won hard hat. Was, yeah. yeah third or fourth largest um uh, so the third largest export, industry. export industry for the Australian economy yeah. was international education. And mm-hmm. now Dan Tien gets to be the trade yeah. minister, so I yeah. wonder if that makes him yeah. care about this. Now. No, it, it is. It is. <laughs> it's really stark stuff. But, but I mean, that's, that goes to what we're seeing is the rear guard of the fossil fuel industry uh, in this that are operating in this country, uh, throwing everything they can. I think their strategy. I think they know they've cooked. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they're trying to do is to delay things. Um, I know that the gas industry like to pose themselves as a an, as an interim measure before mm. we go all green. Mm. This is the way they sort of pose themselves uh, as a sort of a short term or medium term thing. Oh, don't worry, we can just go with this, and while you adjust that, um, which is an interesting one because it's things are so stark. It's actually a really r- rubbish mm. argument. Um, the Libs have lost. There's no there's nowhere to go to internationally. So, but they are um, those sections of the ruling so they're desperate to keep sort of you know clinging on like that and that would explain a bit of like what would yeah well we are foreshadowing in there it's the the movies by say the Murdoch media which is um you know absolutely batshit crazy on this stuff um in terms of um, using Joel Fitzgibbons as a proxy um, oh, to yeah, fight let's a talk war about that. Yeah. with um with the, <laughs> the federal parliamentary labor yeah. party so the 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 Federal Parliamentary Labor Party, or the PLP, if you like, we'll call them that, um, have been under tremendous pressure recently from the, the Murdoch um, empire to yeah, basically ditch a whole lot of climate commitments. We had seen, uh, I mean, maybe we, we are moving on, I guess, in terms of local responses, and I think we should get into that because I think, you know, that pressure is actually, this is part of their strategy now. They want they want to see, it's like they've they've worked out that Labor's a good chance of, of winning the next election and they want to see a, a, a conservative, uh, more of a conservative style um, PLP get in, which is still going to be committed to coal, still going to be committed to the gas industry, still got actually not, only only do very minimal things. Um, that's, that's the way I'm sort of reading. And that's, that's the challenge that the left has got is on a local level. We've got that in ACT. We've got an opportunity there. We've got the Greens and Labor have a massive majority there to pressure and, and do as many you know disruptive things we can. And we've seen state governments um, do the same, actually, in terms of what Australia's been able to meet things internationally more due to local um, polit- political stuff. So there's an opportunity for people to get involved in Labor or the Greens or whatever in terms of trying to exercise, exercise um, political influence uh, over the economy. And the other bit is... Uh, I guess, you know, the economic power that we need to see wielded, which is, um, you know, whether or not we're politically talking about a, a Green New Deal or, or whatever, but there's a, I think that's where we're going right now. And it is a real shame that it's taken a lot of pressure for Albo to actually Who? start. Yeah, who is that guy? Anyway, yeah, well, we know him more now because obviously News Living have gone from he's the poster child for some time um, to now actually they've been actively having a campaign to depose him as the leader of the parliamentary party but there's some stuff there what do you guys think in terms of how the federal responses to climate and COVID we can get into that now on federal and local if you like too. yeah look my I mean this the pressure on the federal ALP around climate has clearly been there for a long time because if it hadn't been we'd have a better policy yeah. but that's also about disjoint within the movement right it's about our friends in the CFMEU and the mining sector, mm. um, and some. And we saw it with the forestry sector managed to move through that eventually. Um, but I, I mean, I I get the sense that not, there's also part of the Fitzgibbon vibe is about trying to protect some votes on that side of that discussion mm. and protect the relationship with those parts of the union movement. Um, 
and we need to move beyond some kind of Stockholm Syndrome relationship there to mm. something that actually says you're an important part of the movement, but we, we need to move through this together. Um, but I think the other thing, and, and I witnessed this for a long time and you, you saw it as soon as Trump was elected, states, subnational government can actually just do this. Um, so your observation, Ben, that states and territories in Australia are moving past the standards set by federal government is an apt one, and we see that around the world. Um, so part of me is also be better federal government, but also we're not going to wait here for you. Mm. There are other there are other ways we can we can move action on yeah. this. I think it's it's interesting the terrain that Fitzgibbon and the Otis Group, who meet in a mm. local restaurant, <laughs> um, are trying to set basically like odious turds in synchronization <laughs> now, I just have to ask a question is that because they were meeting at the Otis restaurant yeah, yeah, it took yeah. me ages yeah. to figure that out yeah so they had a meeting and they got discovered there um, they got by, busted they yeah. got busted haven't seen that but I think it's they're, they're deliberately trying to say that uh, like have a, like a workerist position mm, so yeah. and and this is linked to like the blue labor approach the new like cultural front of it as yeah well. that basically yeah, like action on climate change is middle class yeah um and like supporting things like coal and the gas industry is pro that working class yeah. because yeah. it's because it's linked to employment yeah and certainly that's um that is a very interesting trend because it's not enough for just say we need action on climate change mm. um, because there is people employed in these jobs and they're uh, often incredibly well paid. Mm. So it's, it is going to be difficult to say to these people, look, uh, you're going to transition to another job yeah. when it's probably not going to be as well paid. Yeah. Uh, and that is a real challenge, I think, for the left in that there is... There is sort of entrenched interest, not just in terms of corporate interests, but a lot of the workers are very well paid. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that means we need a sort of more comprehensive approach because um, that means we, we're looking at the new industries and where they're located as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, because we can't just leave it to the anarchy of the market. Um, yeah, and that's why you actually need like specific regional development to yeah. deal with those issues. Mm -hmm. And that actually requires state intervention. Yeah. And I think that's where... We can't just use the moral argument of we need to take action on climate change. We need to be specific about we need to make sure it's based on things like equality so mm. that not just those workers, but those communities which rely on that income mm -hmm. can actually still benefit. But that actually requires a, a turning turning around of neoliberal orthodoxy and that we should just leave it up to investment decisions. Mm. Um, we might need to say, like, these areas need investment. We're going to... State's kind of yeah, but, but it's interesting that you say that it's a turnaround of neoliberal orthodoxy when they've been subsidising the fossil fuel industry mm -hmm. forever. Um, but I think that's that's a really important point, Tim. And we need to be really clear that this this isn't just going to happen once. This is going to keep happening. So this isn't just about climate change. This is also about the future of work and those issues we were talking about at the beginning around automation, and you know striking that balance between when is the right time to you know to move through a transformation in a sector right. and then how do you do that with dignity and with protection for the people who need to move through that through that transition but it's also um and this sort of circles back to the credible women things that was sort of picked up a little bit in that conversation as well is that these transitions and moments of disruption are also moments to make sure the next thing that comes is more inclusive right. so if we're going to invest, and we should, in these in this um, 
development and regional development and in these these new sectors that will become fields of employment, this is your opportunity to look at some of those issues around women in STEM, around the participation of Indigenous people and the use of Indigenous knowledge, um, all of those things. There's a real opportunity to diversify what those industries look like and make them more inclusive. Um, but I think we need to be, you know, in the left and in the ALP, we need, you know, a bit of a field guide for what this process looks like because we're not just going to be transitioning the coal sector and then the gas sector. We're going to be transitioning sector after sector after sector because of climate change and because of the changing nature of work. Hmm. Let's move on um, and talk about the US maybe, like the sort of, uh, since we we live uh, in this weird spot in the world where we're um, on the periphery of two empires, one ascendant and one descendant. (laughs) And the weird position that puts us in, I suppose. But we don't need to talk necessarily about the Australian perspective. But I just kind of wanted to chat about what's going on in the US, like because now it's like the end of the Trump era. Um, unfortunately, we didn't manage to stop the steal, guys. Um, and uh, it looks like um, the corrupt Joe Biden administration is going to it's going to uh, take power. So, mm. uh, with that in mind, uh, what do you guys think? I, I suppose maybe we could start out talking about this uh, stimulus bill that's just going through. The original stimulus bill in the US had um, a $1,200 check for everybody. Um, this one's only got 600 because I believe because the Democratic leadership um, refused any extra any, any additional stimulus because they were worried that it would help Trump get re-elected um, and now have absolutely nothing to bargain with. So um, they've only managed to get half that much through this time. Um, but don't worry because there's half a billion dollars in there for Israel just in military aid. So um, that's good. Um, that's that's going to really help the um, American uh, working class. I don't know, like, what... Oh, uh, there's, like, the Biden uh, sort of... The beginning of floating of cabinet positions is the other the other thing that's, like, mm. been, you know, in the sort of forefront of everyone's minds. Lots of just sort of corporate uh, Democrats, um, old friends of Joe Biden's, people that he's yeah. known for decades and things like that. You just shake your heads. It's just that the horror show is going to continue. It just might be a little better than what it's been mm. but um that's my take on it and there is an opportunity um there like i guess in australia in terms of people are being pressured into actually fighting whether they like it or not um and that's been interesting there's been you know some pretty inspiring things happening here little droplets mm. of it but i think that's um there has been some considerable industrial action um, going on in the u.s and you know, elsewhere mm. in the development but in the u.s it's been um it's been good. Um, what's scary for us, I guess, is that the continuation of their sort of crazy foreign policy, with uh, whether it's supporting Israel will go on, whether it's um, the saber rattling with China was going to continue, that creates problems for, for our local rulers. <laughs> Not that we're all fans of China at all in any way. Democracy for China would be my foreign policy um, soft war to, to run against them. But yeah, that's, that's my take on it. Um, but we have to be kind of clever about how we talk about the US and China and those sort of things in the coming year. I think that it's hard not for me not to think about, you know, Marx discussed uh, in the 18th Brunier of Louis Bonaparte, how um, historical events occur twice, first time as a tragedy, second time as a farce. Yeah. Bring um, out the big guns. <laughs> <laughs> He's a teacher. Um And it's hard not to think about that with Biden because I mm. think um, the first about 
the Obama eight years to me mm. was actual tragedy because yeah. it was actually based around mobilization of people mm. um, who were like particularly young people who were like fighting for a better future and invested a lot of hopes mm. in Obama. And then at the crucial point, they decided to uh, bail out Wall Street rather than homeowners. And totally demobilize. Yeah, yeah. demobilize. And this was the same process. And it led to um, a whole lot of like aspirations just being crushed. Um, and led to like a right-wing sort of counterinsurgency based on that. And I think it was a real tragedy because it was based on that. And I think Biden is trying to rehash this, um, but has not got the same basis for it. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's putting the same figures in, yeah. um, but it's not, has, it's not the same historical figure as Obama, but he's trying to rehash that same. And it, and it already sort of looks a bit farcical because people probably may have heard that, that uh, interview that pressure he was getting from some of the leaders of the, the black community about yeah. asking him questions about what he's going to do in the future and he completely lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's the attitude's really interesting, right? Because he's his attitude is basically like, well, I won. Like, what the fuck else do you want from me? Yeah. Like, yeah. I did it. I, you know, beat Donald Trump. Like, uh, he's the only white boy. Now you should be happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and I think that's. Um, yeah, that indicates that uh, how I think it's going to develop. So a lot of people have put some hopes in it, but I wouldn't mm. imagine that uh, a lot of those are going to get fulfilled, except maybe on, on some symbolic levels um, and maybe some movement in some areas, but uh, in terms of what is necessary, because the social crisis in the US is well beyond what we can imagine uh, in terms of what people are facing and the response necessary is just, I, I can't see it emerging. Yeah. And on the second issue of China, I think that is that is going to be a major issue um, because I think basically there is the expectation that Biden will uh, lead a renewed international order in order to confront China. Mm. Um, but And Australia is definitely expecting that and sort of like pivoting to play that role uh, in, in this area. But for me, it's going to be very hard to see that as actually occurring. The, the consigliere... <laughs> yes, <laughs> because basically, like the US is so fractured as a state, mm. to expect it to lead like an international coalition against China, which is an ascendant power, mm. to me seems laughable. Um, and that's where, again, like the fast dynamic, I think, is going to come into play, in which there'll be lots of saber rattling. But to actually confront some like a power like China, you need a lot of like internal state uh, cohesion, yeah. and, and it's just not there. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um this is a really excellent opportunity for all of us to practice the skill of two things being true at once and being okay with that in that it's better that biden won but this Mm. is not the answer to all of our um all of our aspirations and so critical engagement with that continues to be necessary and that doesn't ameliorate the fact that it's good that he won but that's just that's not the end of the discussion and and um I think you're right, Tim, with the with your points around social cohesion. There's just so much work that needs to happen. Um, and you've got to be realistic about where in the states that, that actually comes from and does it come from the federal government, does it come from state government, does it come from the community. Yeah. Um, I'm still not ruling out major ongoing disruption. This is not the end of the tension and the and the and the disunity within that within that country. Um, but I think your point about internal social cohesion and I would add to that values is actually really important if you're going to mount 
a considered international posturing around poor behaviour in the international world order, or whatever rules-based order, whatever we mm. call it these days, um, it helps to not have shit blowing up in your own country. Yeah. Or you have, like, yeah, the, the um, like National Guard shooting at people. Or, you know. Yeah, so that's or, the other thing. Like, or malicious, literally storming yeah. parliament. Well, I was going to ask about militias. Like, um, now that, like, uh, Trump won't have control over the National Guard, it's not, there's not going to be this obvious, like, federal aggression towards like protesters or whatever when inevitably the next like school shooting or police murder occurs um is that gonna i imagine it's gonna uh only uh encourage people to to sort of take things matters into their own hands and we're gonna see like an increase in like oregon militia training and like um state houses being stormed by guys with ar-15s and like because yeah because they're they're gonna, they're gonna have to go back to an understanding of their place in the in the U.S. society as being one on the fringe rather than being kind of represented right in the center. But I think that depends on who your state governor is. Yeah. Um, and what your various tiers of elected law enforcement are. Remembering in the U.S. that law enforcement is politicized and elected, mm-hmm. which is problematic. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that I think is new, I'm, I'm not aware of this happening, is that there's a shift in the discourse in the left, which is about arming the left. Mm. So rather than the left having a standing position to be opposed to gun ownership, it's going, well, if it's going to go down, I'd rather not mm. be disadvantaged if that's okay with you. And I'm mm. like, oh, I get where you're coming from. Not yeah. quite sure how to respond. And yeah, so yeah. I think... Mal will want to be the Indonesian Communist Party. I don't want to be the Indonesian Communist Party. And they but, did it. Look what happened. Yeah. But I also think, and this is this is a thread that I've been thinking about across across this um, across this conversation, is I feel like humans right now have a really limited attention span, mm. which is problematic for positive action, but it's probably pretty useful for militias for getting what they were angry about mm. and maybe just going home. Mm. Um, so yeah. I think the news cycle moves on and the anger moves on, but I. Trump didn't come from nowhere. This militarised form of civil aggression against progress didn't come from nowhere. It's not just going to go away. Um, So I think we need to be realistic about what that means and what the depressurising points could could look like. And I think there's going to be an exasperation of existing fractures, Mm. um, which we began to see emerge, which on the left we often just look at the left, but if you look at the right to see how much that's transformed in the past period mm. as well, that's going to be a major issue because basically Trumpism just swamped the right mm. um, as, a, as a sort of like position. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, and most of the conservative politicians, which did not come from that trend, just yeah. completely adapted to it. But a lot of them want to stop it in its tracks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this sort of like fractured right is going to continue in terms of like, is it going to be like Trumpism or is it going to be a restoration of that sort of old conservative mm. order mm. Um, so that's going to exist and I think also on the left as well so like the sort of like Biden pro-market soft liberalism yeah. versus like the hardening of the sort of like anti-capitalist mm. left I think is going to going to emerge as well yeah. um, and and those sort of like dynamics is going to be um, so it's not going to be a clear like left versus right divide. In mm-hmm. fact, we're seeing a lot of the soft right go over to Biden um, as opposed to, to Trump. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of hostility towards Biden on, on the sort of far left. Mm-hmm. So those sort of divisions, I think, is going to um, 
yeah, it's going to shape what's going to emerge in the US. That I feel like that um, what you just said about the soft right going over to Democrats is true of like the like the Washington DC like lobbying class and the media, but I'm not sure like, that's not really true of, of like the voting population, is it? Like, I think um, this, there was the Lincoln Project was like the main media mm-hmm. um, arm of that sort of or expression of that movement, um, and I think there was some data that showed that they they didn't. Think like Trump got higher, more votes amongst registered, pre, already registered Republicans. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, I, I they, there's is, like a realignment happening at the top. I feel like, but, yeah, um, but that, I think that's fracturing. I think that is very mass- important as yeah, well because yeah. under like George Bush, like that sort of neoconservative wing, which has gone over to Biden, yeah. were the ascendant power in the Republican mm-hmm. Party, yeah. and basically that that sort of like emergence of Trumpism mm-hmm. and that smashing of that order, I think, yeah. is very important in terms of. Uh, where the Democrats go as well, um, because I think a lot of them, a lot of those figures will be influential in the new Biden administration, particularly when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah. Um, and that's where there will be yeah bigger divisions on the left and right. Because, but, like, but it also depends where the Trump runs, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And yeah. how the Republican Party react to that. So they, they yeah. either learn that lesson and go, maybe not so much. Or they get on board with it, and I think that if that happens, then that shift that you're talking about, yeah. Tim, stays in place, and that yeah. that voice is in the Democrats now with the implications of that. The thing with Trump is, and, and like his, his potential to remain as a, like a political force mm-hmm. at all is really interesting. I've been obsessively reading this really depressing Reddit forum called QAnon Casualties, where it's like oh, every day dozens of people yeah. with new posts talking about their significant others, their mums and dads and stuff, who have just like. Uh, succumbs to like a collective psychosis or something and that's really what it feels like because you read the same story over and over and over again and it's like this is not like a single person just losing their marbles you know and then just like grasping onto something this is like a a real collective experience of people just like detaching from reality Mm. and I am skeptical about whether there will remain a political force it really seems like the um, the finalization of the Biden transition and everything will probably leave a lot of them just saying, well, fuck this, I'll never bother to take part in politics again because it's all rigged and like their understanding of everything is, is based on like clandestine deal making by like invisible power brokers and the deep state and everything. Yeah. So they're totally disempowered and disenfranchised, uh, even more so than they actually are. Like their worldview leaves them feeling even more disenfranchised than they are because they're relying on like secretive white hat actors to do good things rather than even understanding themselves as having a, a role of change for change in any way, shape, or form. So yeah. I actually think as well that like if Trump wants to, he can take all of those people and just permanently demobilize them. Yeah. You know? But I'd be really careful about framing that as delusion. And I think uh, more useful frame or a frame from which we can learn is to me this just speaks volumes about distrusting government Mm -hmm. which is not unique to the united states but you can see what that looks like Mm -hmm. and um even if even if we zoom back to the beginning of covid responses and how they played out differently in different countries those countries with social cohesion got their shit together and locked this stuff down and australia was one of those countries we have relatively high levels of trust in government and Mm -hmm. Aussies, despite what we like to think about ourselves, love a good rule. Um, but what you can see, I think, with QAnon, and I, and I try really carefully to 
allow space in my comprehension of this for this for this thought to come through, which is this is what it looks like when you, you're disenchanted and unattached to your government. Um, this is what it looks like when you can't when it's really difficult to um, understand real and fake news, and I, I think we should admit that that's actually not that easy. Um, this is what it looks like when you maybe lack the the education and social security to be anything other than paranoid. Um, and I think we should admit that that can come actually really quite easily. Human yeah. brains are pre-wired to think like this <laughs> because we'd really rather be out in a really relatively sparse field hunting an animal and we can't handle more complexity than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think there's this goes, to for me, in part to the heart of what it means to have trust in a community and trust with leadership and um, for all of those things that... Um, that underpin cohesion um and the fraying of that looks like QAnon mm. and the fraying of that looks like I don't like I don't like vaccines but you can see that from here right like if you if you were in the states and Trump had rushed through a vaccine would you take that because from where you sit and I don't want to go into conspiracy theories here but from where we sit we can see that he was fucking around with the CDC mm. we can see that he's controlling stuff he shouldn't we can see that there were there were political pressure on the things that we understand to be important. Mm. Mm. So it'd be really easy for us to yeah. sit here with our knowledge and go, well, I don't trust this. Um, yeah. So I just be very, I'm just, I try, I like, I, what I'm trying to say is I'm actually trying to be generous with the people yeah. who think like this because I don't think it just comes from a place of delusion. I think right, it yeah. comes from a cautionary tale about people, how people feel in their community yeah. um, and what they're attached to. And we, lose sight of that at our peril I think yeah. because that's really fundamental well, I, mean, I totally agree yeah, that's, and that's I mean that does yeah, yeah like, what, like what Amy's saying is this is one of the things that was always it's taken some sections of the left or the liberal left if you like a lot to actually quite understand in terms of who was voting for Trump mm. they're not all you know like Trump was able to particularly in his first term to really He's a lot of his support. There was a lot of it there coming from um, people who got around in terms of some of his economic positions, particularly in terms of jobs. There was jobs and jobs and jobs, and a lot, 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 lot of that was born on the fact. If you had a said NAFTA, it was always greeted with huge hisses and boos at any of his things. Like that, that sort of the economic um, populism that he was doing was one of the reasons. Now he definitely went on the back in the last election, um, the one that he's lost. But there were still plenty of people who turned out and voted for him um, around that sort of, you know. So what I'm getting at is there was an opportunity, and there still remains an opportunity for the left in the US, which they are taking advantage of, uh, of actually trying to, hey, we're not going to talk about Russia. We're actually going to talk about taxing the rich and, you know, securing incomes and looking after communities. And that's how we can explain, like, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, and and not, you know, treating him like an idiot, um, which is why we can explain the DSA doing so spectacularly well. Over 85,000 members, uh, it was a couple of months, like three months ago, I think they declared that, like, you know, they're on the way to 100K. Um, You know, they, they are amazing in terms of what they've been doing. The uh, progressive, what do they call them, the Justice Democrats, which is basically a funding organisation that puts up um, some excellent candidates. The fact that there have been so many uh, left-wing, openly left-wing um, Democratic candidates of one office did did way better than any of the establishment corporate Democrats is, is something we can look to for inspiration. The Black Lives Matter movement has been incredibly inspiring. It's definitely inspired um, the campaigns for social justice for Indigenous, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here and their supporters, which they need in this country because it's such a minority of the population that's so you know terribly disproportionately um, meted out with all lots of inequality. So that's 
you know, that's where we can look for some inspiration for US and it's not all going one way and, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's definitely an active fight going on here. I guess here we draw on those examples to how we want to fight here in terms of that bigger, broader mm-hmm. uh, international as well as local thing about having a better climate and future for everyone. Yeah. And I, I lived in the States yeah. until early 2017 mm-hmm. and my, my main takeaway as an Aussie living in the States is that that country exists as a cautionary tale for this country yeah. and that's where we are in 5 or 10 or 15 years if we are constantly vigilant yeah. about the range of structures and processes and engagements that are necessary to protect social justice and inclusion. Now, I, I wanted to swing us back to the most important thing, and thank you for that, Amy, um, which was um, the incredibly insightful piece in the Fairfax, well, sorry, the nine newspapers. Oh, yes. We got a little Christmas um, treat Because we, we did we did get a Christmas treat. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what was the fellow's name? Uh, this is uh, Rob Harris, National Affairs Editor um, in the, for Sydney Morning Herald. Um, so he's offered us up this this really excellent piece that I might just read from, and everyone just. But before you do, mm. can I just say I'm disappointed that Rob Harris isn't reporting on national affairs from Parliament House because that column would be so great. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, I'll just I'll read. Feel free to jump in at any time um, with your thoughts. Um, but this is just like this is the future. Really this important, is 2021. Really valuable. Are we going to do this like my dad read a wrote a porno you'll read a sentence yeah. and then we'll react <laughs> yeah yeah uh, my dad wrote a, a stupid opinion. article yeah um uh, federal labor drifting in its third term of opposition and struggling to cut through should be asking itself one thing what can it do for a working class kid from broad meadows the answer is obvious make him leader <laughs> Eddie Maguire, a veteran personality and commentator, has in the past few weeks quit his long-running Triple M breakfast radio show and uh, announced plans to end his 22-year reign as president of the nation's most famous sporting club, Collingwood. Well, can I... Let, let, okay, yes. we have to stop there. Yeah. What I love about this masterful yeah. opening yeah. is it manages to mash together an aura of you know disadvantage and struggle mm. with, in like one sentence... The most privileged thing I've ever heard. Super rich guy quits super prominent <laughs> rich jobs yeah, yeah. in order to faff around and do nothing. Yeah, is that a loose end? Yeah. Give the guy something to yeah, do. Yeah, I love. Yeah. I love that they've just he's, so he's in early so retirement. It's actually matchless. really tragic if you think. Yeah, about I mean, <laughs> I, that, it's just a beautiful piece of writing. So good. I love it. Yeah, but at fifty-six, is Eddie everywhere <laughs> winding down or just gearing up? Maguire, the son of immigrants uh, who paid £10 to give their children a better life in Australia, represents everything modern labour should aspire to and everything it is searching to reconnect with. Can I just point out the parallels with Tony Abbott? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) He's just Tony Abbott, right? Done. Yeah. Uh, Born into Blue Collar Housing Commission, he became, through tireless hard work and boatloads of ambition, a household name. And all without ever forgetting his roots or pretending to be anyone else but himself. Uh, maybe he should consider doing that actually it might might work out for him pretending to be somebody else um, this uh, sorry his personal personable nature won over footy fans and he restored the aura of Melbourne's famed working class football club to powerhouse status all through reconnecting the magpies with their traditional roots in very contemporary fashion I just Does love, anyone have any what I love is the things? pouring out of the page of the whiteness yeah. and the maleness he's, of this. Yeah. He's Robert Harris. It's like, so, brown ladies, yeah. step aside. Oh, man, I, 
Is Robert Harris a paid-up member of Collingwood uh, Football Club? That's that's what I want to know. Well, that's, what I love about this is there. like, do, do, does he, if, if Australians are this obsessed with football, does he not understand how problematic it would be to win votes if you're the what was he the president of? Yeah, president yeah, of Collingwood. Yeah, my yeah. family would vote against that on well, the just principle. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, even an AFL wise, you're going like every AFL. They they always joke about it, Victorians, because I, I don't really like. Yeah, it's a national sport, but it's one it's football code. It's a, mm. it's a Victorian sport. Yeah, okay, they've got you know franchises elsewhere. Good for that. Like, anyway, well, let's not get into the sports argument. But I do find like it's funny that that the, you know AFL teams always talk about. Oh, I'll go for anyone who's playing against Collingwood. Like, that's literally, you know, <laughs> so it's him being coming from Collingwood isn't necessarily a big vote winner. But um, I digress. But it yeah. is worth, actually, yeah. like, you say, like, like let's not get into a sports argument, but that's really the vibe of this article yeah. as well. It's kind of like Monday morning quarterbacking are talking about, like, who they should make their new, like, the new fullback or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's not a... I think, I think the reality is that a lot of these journalists are bored at the moment mm, because yeah. um, like federal <laughs> politics is like boring yeah. um, for them because they're, and they're agitating for something, anything to say that they become more prominent. I think that's, and this is just like throwing out an idea because mm. like <laughs> the idea that um, the aspiration of Labour voters is to become president of a football club <laughs> and like a Channel 9 figure. Yeah. Yeah. How many pathways is open for that? Yeah. <laughs> Like it's just, people loved the footy show so much that they watched it uh, in droves and it definitely never got cancelled because nobody looked at it. Yeah, so we just need to create like yeah. lots of like footy clubs and install people as presidents. You know, that's the pathway out of poverty yeah. for people, working class people in Broadmeadows. Did the part, did he actually look in this piece though? Does Harris actually make a case other than, you know, that, I mean, I was reading, I was literally going, oh, great, good to see, you know, this, this guy is normally meant to have a role in terms of their political, you know, sort of bent of, of this newspaper. Like, just, they've just gone and polled on the most recent News Limited campaign they've been, that, that have been running against Albanese and because the, you know, the, the Labour Party. That's, that's like, what it is. It it's just so bit like lazy. A, it feels it's a little just, bit like a top and tailed Wikipedia yeah. article. Yeah. But, Jacob, I really want you to read on. Yeah, let's yes. I think there's more juice here. A finely honed radar for Middle Australia made him a success on television and radio and, it must be said, landed him in hot water along the way. <laughs> what, I, what I love about that oh, is Middle Australia. Come. Fuck yeah. you, not Middle Australia. Yeah. Everyone else can just go home. Yes. Yeah. Do yeah. your own trivia. Yeah. Um, Maguire's a straight talker uh, for better or worse and doesn't have to think twice about what he stands for um, except uh, for he hasn't got the bandwidth except for all of the apology <laughs> yeah. apologising that he talks yeah, about in yeah. the next paragraph yeah. Yeah. No one would ever, <laughs> which is thinking yeah, twice I, I understand do we, do we have to actually oh, no, yeah, we're we're going through, yeah. no one would ever accuse him of being woke okay a, che- <laughs> a key challenge for Labour identified in the party's election review which urged the ALP not to become a quote grievance based organisation which yeah, that's that's fantastic because you know um, it's not like the party um, you like was founded in order to pursue anyone's grievances mm. or anything like yeah. that. Um, uh, his failures, and there have been a little litany of awful gaffes, <laughs> have been very public. So too have his grovelling apologies, which, which is really the real crime uh, if you think about it. The fact that he ever apologised. Um, I was looking that the um, the sentence litany of awful gaffes is like a hyperlink, and it goes to another. Um, an age article uh, recently came out where there's a great bit they talk about oh yeah the land of falafel Maguire made national headlines in 2011 after uh, labelling Sydney's western suburbs the land of the falafel during a discussion about whether the Sydney Giants coach uh, a a discussion with the Sydney Giants coach Um, which yeah I don't know 
what he's trying to get at. There's a lot of vegetarians living there, I suppose. What are you supposed to eat <laughs> when you're drunk at four o'clock yeah. in the morning and there's nothing's open? Yeah. You're in a falafel van. Yeah. It's the most Australian football attending thing you could do. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. I also like that the, um, what was it? Christina Keneally defended Western Sydney, calling it the powerhouse of New South Wales economy. <laughs> Thanks, Christina. <laughs> uh, they, they don't have falafel there. Don't say that. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, none of these gaffes were more damaging to him than the notorious King Kong gaff on radio morning on morning radio in relation to adding Adam Goods, uh, the AFL player. Some critics have forgiven but not forgotten. Some became emboldened. Well, that's an example of straight talking according to Rob. He's yeah. just like referring to Adam Goods as like a monkey. He's just good old-fashioned straight yeah. talking. He was tired. <laughs> he was tired. He'd had a long day. Long day. And, and as you guys know, like... You know how um, you don't, like, deep down have any, like, racist thoughts or feelings, um, but oh, then no. when you get tired, it's, they are generated spontaneously yeah. inside you. <laughs> it's a yeah. side effect of fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, anyway. So uh, when you take those cold flu medications, it may cause fatigue. If you look at it, it's also racist yeah, yeah, and sexism. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, for uh, me, it's latent Trotskyism. It just, yeah, yeah, it just comes <laughs> out of you. just comes out. <laughs> oh, no, I need to lie down and have a sleep. His stupidity didn't enter there. With inappropriate remarks about age columnist Caroline, Caroline Wilson and Sydney Swans supporter and amputee Cynthia Bannum, also leading to widespread pylons. Oh. <laughs> uh, Tanya Plibersek, a potential Labour leadership candidate, oh, no. called him medieval. Um, perhaps the only thing in his favour was a lack of malice, but ignorance is no longer an excuse in modern politics. Where is this going? Fucking I'm lost now. <laughs> I know. So where is he going? That said, the rise of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson may have shown voters don't always embrace PC sentiment. Unlike some of his contemporaries, yeah. he's, admit, he's attempted to own his mistakes with varying forms of success. But it's not clear he has always learned from them. Every leader is ultimately shaped by their setbacks. Eddie for Canberra is not a new notion, and truth be told, it's probably not a realistic one. <laughs> okay, so, so why did you write this fucking article? His Turak lifestyle and investment portfolio would be a lot to give up for daily lunches at Parliament House's quote-unquote trough. But he's a working-class boy from Broadmeadows. Yeah, Australia, which is so, it? Yeah. But also, you know, he's got a foot in each. Yeah. This is why he's the, the yeah. every man, and I say man deliberately. Yeah. God forbid he be forced to suffer the trough. The nickname, <laughs> the nickname given to the taxpayer-subsidised staff canteen, which serves up daily concoctions only rivaled in Roald Dahl's The Witches. That's a really weird... That's not true. I've been uh, there. It's fine. Yeah, it's probably really good. It's quite and nice. the fact that they get paid lunches and they see it like yes. such a deprivation so of, yeah, yeah, as compared to all the other people have to go out and buy their own or make well, their own. Go yeah, make their own food. <laughs> oh, yeah. kind of hope they... Put something in his food next time he eats it. <laughs> to be honest, but mm. yeah. uh, he has thought he'd struggle to fit into either party, saying in 1999, I'd like to see a government that ran the economy like the Liberals, but with a Labour Party conscience. So um, into the, the ground. <laughs> yeah, the, the Labour Party of the 1990s. It's an interesting uh, take. <laughs> yeah. uh, in grade four at St Dominic's Primary in Broadmeadows, he penned an early prime ministerial manifesto. The nuns appreciated it because he said he argued that uh, teachers should be paid more. But his closest friends in politics are Labour people, including Bill Shorten, and his brother Frank has been member for Broadmeadows in Victorian Parliament since 2011. He was a leading campaigner in the Australian Republic movement in 99, and in 2012 penned a blistering attack on Julia Gillard's opposition to same-sex marriage. Uh, quote, 
Maybe it is time for a national debate on the society we want, a progressive, caring, sophisticated and self-assured community looking deep into this century, or one mired in hocus-pocus, dark ages bigotry. You can't have degrees of equality, he wrote. Oh, go on, Eddie. Wow. Thanks well, for, he did that. I'm warming this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but you got to remember, it was another Johnny-come-lately. He just, mm. like, the, the writing was on the wall, it was coming. He came out when it was the right time to do it. Like, if, if he was clever, like, I, I just, he came out at the right like, time. I think, I think we like, actually need to break down, yeah. like, how this would work but that in is... reality. Like, if he could start, you know, every press conference by describing a terrible thing that happened to mm. a member of the audience, like yeah. he does on that show, that'd be great. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that could work. Yeah. I love it. And we've already discussed my multiple choice policy. I'm starting yes. to. Okay, I'm starting to want yeah. to. <laughs> so that's so ready for camera. Uh, I think it was off mic before we started recording. We were talking about a who wants to be a millionaire approach to direct mm. democracy. Would you mm. like to spell that out for us? Oh, well, I think what we could what we could see is um, once a week in prime time, mm. um, he rolls out four somewhat similar policy options, and we just get to choose one. Mm. Mm. And uh, you know, at the end of the series, we've either got a million bucks or we don't. Mm. Or I'm, government. You could get into that really crazy. Um, the, there's an Italian mob that were doing that. Basically, you'd vote online for particular policies positions, mm. and that would, you know, then there'd be the position to take a parliament. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of Jackie. Jeff, Jackie Lambie's kind stuff, of got right? a model for this. Yeah. Mm, yeah, she does. So yeah, I think if we could, put, I think Facebook if we could page. wrap the "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire" branding yeah. around mm. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's participatory yeah. democracy and at its could best call potentially. It uh, where am I? Uh, Maguire told his masthead in 2002, politics is not something I harbour at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but you never he, say never. He does grammar good. Yeah, he does do good words. <laughs> um, he has always said he was not certain he was prepared to, quote, put in danger the well-being of my family for politics. Okay. Um, while at Collingwood, he put a higher value on the club, reconnecting with its social conscience. At a community level, he did it well through welfare work with Melbourne's homeless population with the Salvation Army. There are around 42 three-bedroom houses in the Magpie Nest program and 94 adults and 24 children who were homeless or at risk of homelessness are now accommodated. Uh, I want... Do you, how much of Eddie's own money do you reckon he put into that? Oh, do you reckon it was oh, mem- no, Collingwood it's, members' it's money? Tough, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, well, all this seems very specific, like the grade four speeds. Like, yeah. Where is he getting It's almost this? like he spoke yeah. to Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. He's got Eddie's scrapbook. He said, we can actually make an impact in society and we're able to do that without going through all the party politics and the nonsense, uh, he said of his work as Collingwood president. Oh, so let's just step back from that. So he's advocating a private philanthropy approach to social justice. He obviously does not want to be involved in politics at all. And like... All of the quotes, all of the direct quotes of him Mm. that are being used in this article to argue that he could be are of him saying, I don't want to do that. This is a very sophisticated pitch, isn't it? Oh, man, it's like they're trying to trick him. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's reverse psychology. (laughs) Maguire was offered the safe labour seat of Scullin in mid-2005. I didn't know that. I'm upset about that. But his business career took precedence. (laughs) I can't take time off at the business factory. Uh, he became chief executive of the Nine Work Network for a turbulent 18 months, a time remembered no, most notably for his alleged boned remark in, about presenter Jessica oh, Rowe. I've oh, forgotten that. Yeah. That's back in my head. <laughs> um, he still denies saying it. Some of Maguire's closest... Uh, but 
but yeah, no, he does own his mistakes, as we said earlier. Um, uh, some of Maguire's closest ALP allies this week told this masthead the prospect of him entering the political scene now was unlikely. But they all can see the option would be mouthwatering. Oh, oh Eddie. Oh, man. <laughs> if we really, really wanted to reach the broadest possible um, cross-section of Australia, I think you'd have to pair him with, like, Carl Stefanovic, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> he's, like, Channel 7. Yeah. And also a complete douche. Yeah. So it would cover off the complete... Couple of loose Aussie yeah, blokes. The, the total douche market. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, the prospect of Maguire, an outsider, breathing life and adding some star quality to Labor's front, front bench is now a, perhaps a sign of how stale it's become. Oh, here we get to the real gist of the article. Um, Anthony Albanese, Albanese's leadership has struggled during the COVID-19 pandemic although his allies point out his personal polling numbers are better than any state opposition leaders. He may well be saying all the right things, but an increasing number of his caucus believe they cannot win the next election. Uh, whereas there's a, there's a whole slate of winners waiting in the ranks there, just waiting to take over and, and just, just bring it home, aren't they? Conversely, if Elbow hosted a trivia show, I would 100% watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's probably what he was really born to yeah. do. Yeah. Well, I, I think Albo would be quite happy just being a weird, you know, DJ. Yeah. Just go around. And oh, he can know. do that at yeah. the end of his show. He likes show. doing that, yeah. Yeah, he yes. can do that. And he can become president of South. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, he oh. can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So what we need to do is we need to Maguire Elbo. Yeah. And then circle back to this strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then only once Albo has acquired the star power yeah. should he become the Labour. And, and, like, and denied his interest in politics over like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. because Albo is the Sydney version of Maguire. Yeah. He yeah. grew up in the uh, Housing Commission. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's a South fan, like yeah. working class club. Yeah. Yeah. Loves to get on the beat. They'll just swap positions. That's yeah. it. Yeah. We just do a swap. Yeah. yeah. You know? But I mean, look, okay, seriously though, the reason why this piece exists is, I mean, there's two things. Um, there is the malaise that the Federal Parliamentary Party has been doing for the last 12 months, which is at differing times they've shown some leadership, but it's often been, hasn't really been, they've been emphasising the national interest and collo collaboration as opposed to trying to differentiate themselves from what the Liberals have done. Um, there's been plenty of comment by people saying that they haven't gone hard enough uh, and they've often been pushed to actually come out strongly around um, the, was it the job seeker and um, what are the other one? Job seeker and job keeper? Yeah, and job Programs maker. like job maker. Like there, there's been a whole lot of policy questions where you sort of scratch your head a little bit about the performance of the Federal Parliamentary Party this year. That's part of one of the reasons why this article exists. The second bit is that um, they had adopted a rubber and were looking to try to really soften down the climate policy that we had. And only recently, um, Albo and, and the leadership started making some noises that sounded like, oh, you might actually have a bit more of a spine on the, the climate mm -hmm. policies. And that's had the reaction from News Limited, who have been just running this crazy campaign against um, uh, the parliamentary Labor, but particularly against Albanese, and concocting, making up weird stories about Oh, Albo is so unpopular and Federal Labor is going to lose and there doesn't really seem to be much in the way of evidence for this but if there is it's kind of like well we're still a long way from an election and we've got the commentariat who have got, seem to have got no idea about how a um, Federal Parliamentary Labor leader is elected mm -hmm. uh, it's incredibly difficult now with the rules to actually replace mm -hmm. uh, you know a, a Federal leader you'd have to get it's a 25 or 70 but it's, it's a large number of the Parliamentary Labor Party MPs to yeah, call for a spill it's about 70% yeah. 
and then you have to have a ballot of all members to, yeah. to do that. So it, there's cuckoo land stuff from the commentary about actually yeah. the possibility of, of, of Albanese, uh, Albanese being rolled. Sorry, there's another, like, just there's one, like, more little angle on this. I'll just read the last, like, two lines um, so we can sort of get into talking about it. Um, but he says, um, in the days to come, Albanese has the opportunity to reshape and regenerate his, his shadow cabinet which is full of Gillard and Rudd era ministers. Mm. No less than 12 of the tw- current 20 on the Labour front bench have been in their jobs for close to a decade. Will Alban- Albanese seize, o- seize authority and shake up the show? Uh, so that's the real end of the article. But then he tags it with, perhaps he should find a friend and lock in Eddie. Um, but yeah, so like talking about... Uh, so, you know, actually, I, now that I think about it, maybe, you know, maybe that he's, he's not wrong. Uh, I think really the, like the lesson uh, from Corbyn is that you got to purge. You got to have a big purge, otherwise you get screwed. Uh, so maybe uh, that's what's go- that's what's going to happen. Maybe maybe uh, he makes a not a bad point, old mate Rob. Well, my feeling is, having read that whole article, it seems like there's some figures in the right who floated this idea right. with this journalist because they're they're definitely on some sort of offensive that mm-hmm. we can see because there was that book released, "What's Right," um, yep. which is like the the labor right saying we've got the ideas like just uh, in uh, put us in power but they haven't got a figure why was it called that um, because they're it doesn't make any sense yeah. like I get that it's like right. it's like right so it's like the right faction it's why is it spelled W-R-I-T-E it, like Right, it's baffling. Right, I there's not another level. Between a dad joke and a breakfast cereal, and then put it on a book. Yeah, it's like it needs another dimension for it mm. to make to, to be a joke or a pun. It's mm. anyway. Sorry. No, but um, but they haven't really got a figure to coalesce behind. Yeah. Mm. Um, because like this most senior figure is Richard Miles, who's a dud. Mm-hmm. You know, and people sort of recognise him as a dud. Uh, and I think they're sort of harking back and looking at well, well what could some mm-hmm. some figures are looking back and saying what could work and they're thinking oh like let's do a Bob Hawke style like a national figure bring him in from the outside and he'll sweep Labour yeah. uh, and they've just had this like thought bubble which they've mm-hmm. they've passed on to put the pressure on Albanese more that seems like what's I'd happening I'd be prepared there. to swap in the head of the ACTU if that's what they're talking about <laughs> <laughs> Sally McManus come on up if we're going to go the Hawks strategy yeah, yeah. that would but, be the Hawks strategy yeah that's right but they're not going to do that so okay. they're like let's go for, an- for another figure because it, it just seems so like coordinated but so haphazard as yeah. well and I think they're they're just like hoping to grasp onto something and get rid of Albert. There's also like the Stalinist revisionism is incredible. That the, the articles and the like they're publishing there, there's just they are mad. They're just literally these are actually some of them actually had a hands on sort of uh, being part of that neoliberal pro- project at different stages. That's that's happened under Labor governments and the like of continuing this idea that we need to outsource, privatize all the rest of it. And then they are talking about blue-collar workers being disabused. Like, well, sorry, you guys were, in, they were involved. You were part of it. You were part of deregulation of smashing up uh, many industries and many protections and all the rest of it. You gave us an industrial relations system, which we mentioned before, where workers have to go to incredible lengths to actually take industrial action to get outcomes of what? A dollar extra an hour? Or, ooh, can we, we need to get with, um, if they demand actually get even proper redundancy provisions, they find themselves locked down. I put some of the blame at some of those people in the, in the, the parliamentary right for some of the existence of that, that set of rules that we've got. So, yeah, it's just uh, they're, they're desperate. They're trying to come up with something. They're looking for some sort of, you know, relevance. Like and, a Hail Mary. Yeah. 
Yeah, because like you said, there's no actually acknowledgement that the membership plays a role in that. Yeah. Um, they can't just install the figure. Um, and you you know, you know have to actually win over the Labor membership yeah. and they're not just going to take on someone because yeah. they've been on TV. Like the yeah. Labor membership is actually different. Yeah. Um, it, just, the, it just occurred to me that actually what he's saying at the end of that is that Albanese should fire himself and replace himself <laughs> with... Eddie. Eddie. Yeah. It's that honourable thing to okay. do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that only just registered that yeah. he, the tone shifts and he ends up yeah. addressing Anthony Albanese should, for some reason. Yeah, just put Eddie in yeah. Albo's seat. Yeah. Um, Rainbow and off he goes. Yeah. But like, Amy, look, the the left, however, we, we're, you know, as, as left, as socialists, as labour activists, right, um, the left isn't fully absolved from this. The parliamentary left in terms of their uh, positioning as I mean there they are with normally the leader and the deputy leader normally from the left in the parliamentary Labour Party and you're scratching your head over the, the last national conference came up with some pretty interesting um, uh, pressure happening right? whether it was um, finally getting um, abortion off the books uh, the, the, the pressure applied to Labour left activists who had launched that campaign was shocking uh, and, and the like uh, climate policy the, the, the parliamentary Labour left were terrible in terms of you know wanting to cut a deal I mean we get it you've got to win a fight right and there's going to be so far you're going to need to negotiate but some of it you're just going well have we solved this holes or whatever I guess now I guess that begs the question is like well what should we doing as um socialists as labour activists and then in the coming year to actually make sort of get some harder positions from we apparently do have left-wing leadership mm. at the moment mm. and and well you wouldn't know yeah good question ben and sort of part of me is i can i can appreciate the challenge of the political landscape of this year and the choices you make about where you're going to plant your flag in, you know, during a national crisis, yeah. um, particularly since Morrison is generally so poor at that. Sometimes vacating the field and let him going to let him go to Hawaii or wherever it is he goes is, you know, maybe there's merit in that. Um, but I agree. I think one of the big disappointments for me, but I think continues to be an opportunity, is there's been a shift in in the things that we're willing to put on the table to talk about. We're talking about reducing 40-hour weeks, we're talking about universal basic income, we're talking about whether capitalism might not be all that. Mm. We haven't been in a place to have a mainstream discourse about these things for a really long time and there are, there's mainstream discourse about these things. This seems like the perfect moment for the ALP to be going, right, what are some foundational conversations that we need to have mm. around the nature of our society and our economy um, and what would be kind of the three or four major policy planks that would support that? that to happen and honestly it's not that difficult it's climate change it's a review of your tax system it's looking at how to support workers through the industrial relations system and i would say that we need to have a really serious conversation about the connection between welfare and the economy like that's four things go forth and have a conversation about those and that means you've got to start picking some policy areas to plant lines in so the ALP should be very clearly saying yeah actually the unemployment rate definitely needs to be raised I feel like we've equivocated on that Mm. they did come out very strongly against income management which I thought was very important Um, and that and it's really hard to get that through mainstream media so there's definitely a cloaking device happening through mainstream media in terms of the messaging coming through the party but there were some very clear lines around that kind of welfare conversation 
Um, uh, there was some pretty strong advocacy for the tertiary sector. This is a this is elbows and the lefts and the parties for the taking about saying actually we're here. These are our values for for the future prosperity of this country. This is where we need to be going. This is our vision. It doesn't need to be complicated. Um, you just need to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And and I think about now in this crisis is where to start. Yeah. If they were afraid of doing it before, they can't. The time for silence is past. I would say. I think that uh, I've been thinking about French socialist leader Leon Blum, um, and he made a distinction between the conquest of power the exercise of power and the occupation of power um, for, like, workers' parties or social democratic parties um, and how the, the initial aim was the conquest of power and to overturn social relations, which then transformed into exercising power, trying to make reforms in order to have the conquest of power, but that then transformed into the occupation of power, like taking power in order to stop other people from yeah. having power. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the sort of thing that we're in at the moment and a real trap to be in um, mm. in terms of like you're just occupying power to stop others mm. from getting it yeah. um, because we we see that those who uh, tried to look at like reforms and sought to take power in order to exercise it like Corbyn and Sanders did actually get destroyed. So that dynamic of just trying to occupy power is incredibly strong at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that I, um, it's a re- and it's a real, but it's a real danger because mm-hmm. we know that Labor governments don't tend to get elected based on just like saying, put us in power, mm-hmm. but there has to be something else behind it. Um, but it's a real, it's going to be a real struggle. So I think that those who think that just changing leader will change, um, the course for Labor, I think are, are fooling themselves. Yeah. Um, it's a much longer, longer struggle um, because we know that um, if it's just a battle of the status quo, the Liberal Party is going to win. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, so you have to actually offer something, and I don't think it has to be like a whole comprehensive program, but I think it needs to be sufficient enough to get people on board. And I think things like childcare, which Labor started to look into. Although they could make it clearer, but like childcare, even things like dentist like making yeah, dentistry free dentistry. like yeah. just like yeah. significant reforms yeah. which people are like that's great i want that yeah, yeah. it's like, fascinating well, with, the, with the child care announcement um again back to murdoch and how this is being <laughs> being um filtered like there's no way to win so they put out a policy which is a essentially a universal um child care policy of drastically reducing the cost without income testing which is on a policy basis the simplest way of dealing with this, um, and then the Murdoch press come out with, oh, this will, you know, people will be making rich people will be making eleven thousand dollars a year, um, and it was either Georgia Dan or Emma Dawson went and crunched the numbers, and apparently this is only possible if you've got six kids under five in childcare five days a week, fifty-two today, fifty-two weeks a year, and you earn five hundred thousand um, dollars. So, so, the, 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 I mean, this is part of the challenge of labour is this is actually a very progressive policy that says everyone is entitled to this for a range of reasons, and so your income's not going to come into it. This is about how we put some stability into this system and into this market, um, and then it gets turned into the... Um, the Labor Party want to give money to rich people. But when Morrison turns it around and, and cuts um, income tax for rich people, that's fine. That's about the economy. Um, 
So, yes, thank you for grounding us, Tim, in some actual policies around, okay, yeah, let's start there, and then we can leave my reformist agenda for later. There's two things that I would like to see, I guess, over the next, like, period. Um, Maybe only one of them is doable in the next 12 months, but um, so this would be sort of a goal to set for labour activists like you guys and members, union members and stuff. Number one would be, uh, abolishing um, job active and mutual obligations mm-hmm. and sort of returning to a centralised Commonwealth Employment Service. Um, that's got to happen. And that's one that has lots of connections, uh, you know, um, in people's mental mapping out of COVID um, to like their experiences, you know. Um, so that's got to happen. That's really, really important. Um, the second one is making wage theft a uh, criminal offence, yeah. right? So we've already got some momentum on that. Um, it's happened in Victoria and Queensland. It hasn't happened anywhere else, has it? Yeah, and actually, look, fair, um, but, uh, the latest tranche of uh, IR laws, which yeah. the government has opportunistically used COVID as an opportunity to really um, smash the hell yeah. out of their, our industrial landscape, they have actually talked about um, yeah. making wage theft a, a yeah. criminal offence. And that's, that's I mean, okay, nod the hat yeah. to the movement for having, getting the, the, the Tories to talk about that. But uh, there's, there's no however, way that yeah, the, it's, it's one good thing amongst what is absolute... Yeah, ter- absolutely that's the thing. Is that there's no way that the union yeah. movement can support those that IR bill yeah. uh, because of the other shit that's in it. Yeah. Um, and also, I think they're... they're like um, criminal provisions mm. for wage theft are yeah. too weak anyway. But yeah. basically the point of that is that it's a step forward uh, to being in a society where you know the laws are written yeah. by working people with mm. their, like and the, where the legal apparatus reflects their interests, you know. So um, whether you've got, you know, reasonable objections to it based on its sort of, its carceral approach to yeah. like um, class justice or... Um, maybe you just um, don't like uh, the arbitration system and the way that it would kind of entrench it or whatever. Um, I still think that um, making um, the working like working class moves within the, the legal apparatus is still good um, because that's that's the exercise of power, you know. Um, yeah. I think there's going to be like battles on many different fronts, mm. and I think that's where we have to look at. Like everyone's going to be in different roles, mm. but everyone should be pushing for in their own particular areas. Because I know, like, in education, there's going to be a flashpoint around NAPLAN next year. I know that um, pretty with a fair bit of confidence. Yeah. And there's going to be, like, state-federal confrontation on that because there was no NAPLAN testing this year because mm-hmm. of COVID. Uh, and that expectation has now been set that we don't actually need this. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for next for next year, there will be a battle around mm-hmm. whether it actually continues. Yeah. And I think that will be a very big, big flashpoint because that's around like what is the purpose of education mm, yeah. um, as well as working conditions for teachers mm, who yeah. should not be set up just to teach for a test um, so that's going to be that's going to be a major issue that I'm going to be looking at um, that will emerge next year as well yeah now look, in terms of like you know the hopes of the future and, and other things I, I think one thing at this show at Dole Capital uh, is we want to encourage you to participate and be involved in your local community and get involved in party politics or your union. Do both. So hard. do both. Like, yeah. yeah, and we're a bit agnostic on the question, but, you know, we think definitely in the, in the territory being in Labor or the Greens is a good thing nationally or, you know, or the like. Yeah. Uh, but do get involved and participate. If you like this show and you've got any ideas or, uh, or things you want us to talk about, send us an email. Uh, send it to Dole Capital, which is D O H. 
K-A-P-I-T-A-L at gmail.com. We've also got a social media presence now, which we're slowly working on. Probably I might start learning how to use Twitter a bit more properly. I think you've been doing a pretty good job <laughs> on that. I've got no, yeah. no clue. But anyway, right. we do have uh, our Twitter account handle is uh, Dole Capital. So that's again at Dole Capital, D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. Uh, on Twitter, yeah. on the Twit, and yeah. on Facebook, we will have a uh, Facebook page as well. That's you can just running. search us. Uh, I'm not sure what the URL for that is. Yeah, and look, we, we've got, uh, there's a whole lot of content you can find us on Good Pods, as you probably found us. Uh, and do subscribe. We've got lots of plans for next year. Hopefully, you know, maybe set up a Patreon, maybe get some better microphones that we can actually go and uh, go and do some recording from yeah. the various uh, actions that, you know, say Jacob's been able to get to, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not sort of. We're starting out just as uh, something fun for us to help cohere and get some ideas and stimulate some debate in our community and then broader. So that's where we're coming from at Dole Capital. So do support us if you can. And we really appreciate that you've listened to this show and um, Amy and Tim. But that's my hopes for next year is, Mm. you know, doing some more agitation and hopefully some more information for people to get involved in their local community. All right, that's it. Let's wrap it up, folks. Thanks so much, Amy. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, uh, it's been such a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll have you both back real soon. Season's um, greetings. Yes. Yeah. Season's greetings. <laughs>